Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 167. I'm Kip Clark, and joining me in the studio today, we have a returning guest, Harry Kalish. Hey, Kip. Thanks for having me back. Well, it's really great to have you back, and I'm excited to again talk about a topic related to education, as we did in our previous episode together. This time, we'll be talking about, as the episode title would suggest, the learning environment. And I'd like to start the conversation discussing classroom spaces as environments for learning. But to those listening who may have already dismissed the topic, I would say two things. One, that I think it's very valuable to discuss classrooms as spaces of learning and what we can glean from how we arrange classrooms. And secondly, that the conversation will expand beyond that as we continue. So stick around. And my first question to you, Harry, because I'd been thinking a lot about it in preparation is what you notice in the changes that occur over the course of a student's experience from kindergarten, high school, and then perhaps to a collegiate or postgraduate career, what the shift in a classroom environment says to you about our expectations of students and how we believe they can best learn, and perhaps even in your personal experiences, which of those environments you found most memorable or well-suited to your learning experience. Yeah, I think that classroom layout and setting is a major focus of early education. I'm not sure exactly why that is, but in my educational psychology class I took this semester, it seemed that we were more focused on K through 8 and how classroom layout is affected during those early elementary and middle school years. And I'm not sure why it's less of a focus in secondary education. I think maybe we're just expected that we don't need these environmental cues and stimuli to have a successful classroom experience. And I think that it's something high school and college classrooms could benefit from because in general, my high school and college classrooms have been set up so that there's a teacher at the front of the room and all the students are in rows facing the teacher. So I think secondary education could benefit from more unique classroom layout. For example, in my alternative program in high school that I was a part of, the classrooms were set up in a circle, so all the students would be facing the center of the room, and the teacher was really more of just a peer. And it was great because those classrooms were largely discussion-based, and you could see everyone, and it was very egalitarian. And I think that any class could benefit from that layout. And I understand that sometimes there are restrictions. You know, if you're in chemistry lab, you will need to have desks and set up so that you have your lab partner or what have you. But I think just having a classroom where you can see everyone and hear everyone's thoughts is really beneficial for a good classroom experience. I agree, and I'm really glad that you mentioned the circular arrangements. One of my favorite teachers in high school, who actually gained a bit of fame because of his commencement speech to us in 2012, Mr. McCullough, arranged the seats in our English class in a circular pattern, which I always appreciated for a number of reasons. I think first of which being that it was, as you said, egalitarian, and also that the teacher, Mr. McCullough in this case, felt like a peer, albeit an informed one. And I really respected the layer of humility that he brought to the classroom in sitting with us. And it's not that he did not lead discussions or did not assign us homework as a teacher would be expected to do in a high school environment. 
but he was also willing to listen to us. And the other thing I really loved is that, as you said, you could see everyone. And so in other classroom environments where there are opportunities to hide certain behavior or perhaps relocate yourself so that a teacher or other students will not pay as much attention to you, participation is not always required of certain students. And I can absolutely recognize that certain students are very uncomfortable talking, and I would never say to force them into conversation for a productive classroom environment. But if you give everyone an equal chance to do so, and also make the environment comfortable, even for those who would rather not speak, I think that is a great way to progress as a class, which is a unit, a group. And I think other classroom arrangements actually fly in the face of that belief of mine that a class is a group, and instead we are individual students. And don't get me wrong, I know that students are graded individually, we come from separate homes and go back to separate homes at the end of the day, but I do think there are certain benefits to envisioning the student as a part of a larger whole. I would point to the fact that in society, although certain cultures, I would say the American culture, does emphasize self-reliance, you aren't particularly alone in society, you are a participant. And similarly, the learning environment to me operates best when it isn't just one person. One of the reasons I love making this podcast is that I have the opportunity to learn from people like you. And I think similarly, if a classroom emphasizes that we, as a collective, can not only learn together, but perhaps learn from one another when appropriate, I think that's a really healthy mindset to embrace and one that isn't always possible in certain classroom arrangements. And there were some articles I read in preparation for today, which I will, as ever, link in the podcast episode description, one of which described a number of go-to seat arrangements for teachers to consider. There are clusters which might group five or six students sitting together in various spots around the room. There are the circular arrangements that you and I described, the stadium or lecture hall arrangements. There is the very basic grid layout in which each desk is equidistant from those surrounding it. And the other which stood out to me in particular is the runway arrangement in which there are two columns facing one another. And I think that's an intriguing layout because I rarely saw it in high school and can think of very particular cases in which it might be beneficial if, let's say, a classroom was engaged in a debate in which one half of the class needed to defend a certain argument and the other side had to defend the opposite belief or perspective. But other than that, I don't know that I, were I a teacher, would ever arrange a class in two columns like that. I would think it might be best to have them facing the front, where a teacher might be located, or in a circle, if perhaps the teacher is joining the students. But I'd be very curious to hear of those arrangements, if you have any particular preferences, especially given some of your experience teaching in classrooms. I definitely have a preference towards the circular arrangement. I have actually experienced the runway arrangement, I think, to less of an extreme degree. It was more horseshoe-shaped. I was in a classroom where the teacher had their desk at the front, and then there were two parallel tables, and then sort of a U-shaped at the end of it. And I thought that layout was all right. It actually kind of reminded me of Fenway Park, where it's a very old stadium. So a lot of the seats are facing like center field. And so you're kind of looking away from the action. And so in that classroom setting, I was facing my other peers, which was fine in discussions. But lots of times in lectures, I would have to kind of cock my head to the right or left in order to see the professor. So I thought it was a decent arrangement, but I think that the circular arrangement is preferable. 
most of my classes in college have been either stadium or grid-like layouts, and they have been all right. I think there's the issue, though, of there being like a singular action zone. So to explain what that is, the action zone is an area in which the teacher is most likely to interact with students. So that would be the front of the room, the front row. And in general, a model like a stadium seating or grid will leave out the back of the class or the students on the side of the class. And I've certainly experienced that sometimes I wouldn't say to my benefit, but in classes where I have participated less and I don't care to participate, it's kind of nice to have that model where I have the opportunity to stay quiet and just listen. And I think that's particularly intriguing as well, because I was thinking as I read these articles and prepared for this episode, did I have a preference when I was a student for where I would sit in a classroom and thinking back on various arrangements, many of which, as you've described, were very similar and fell into the grid-like or stadium patterns, I noticed that I didn't necessarily have a particular preference. I, too, would on occasion prefer to be in the rear or side of the room where I might not draw as much attention, or, as is similarly important to me for whatever reason, where I might have a vantage point. And I've noticed that I do often enjoy sitting up front closer to a teacher or professor because the chance for engagement is higher there, and often I've been lucky to take courses where I've really enjoyed engaging with the subject material. But in terms of vantage point, I don't know that I can necessarily parse that out except to say that I like the ability to scan a room and know who's talking and where they are and being in the back of a room or in a certain corner where I'm able to see everything that's going on, perhaps on some primitive level, gives me a sense of safety. And I think safety is really key in learning environments because, as we talked about in our previous episode, with school, with academia, with any sort of education, I think comes a lot of vulnerability, because you may be learning, but that also necessitates that you acknowledge to a degree an extent of ignorance, and that's never comfortable for any of us, especially for more sensitive social topics. But acknowledging that you don't know how molecules operate, or that you haven't heard of historical events, can make someone uncomfortable, because it does prove what they don't know, and there is absolutely a social capital placed in knowledge. And for me, safety in learning has often been achieved through smaller classrooms. And you and I both attended a college where, in a lot of the class environments, the class size was relatively small, which, according to some of the articles I read, is ideal to limit behavioral issues or attention difficulties between teacher and student. And also, if you have fewer students, potentially you can swing for a smaller classroom. And as a result, some of my English courses were taught in smaller libraries, almost dens, if I can use that term, and those always felt very quaint and comfortable. And in a lot of ways, they managed to mix academia and, dare I say, artistic or more casual culture in a way that made me feel comfortable talking about the material, but also not terribly sensitive to assessment or perhaps critique from fellow classmates because there was this small, almost home-like environment. And I'd really love to know, thinking about these learning environments, what you think about the concept of safety and how it plays a role in the design of a classroom. And I would even throw in that I think there should be a balance of safety and risk, where students don't feel they are at risk for attack or unnecessary critique, and therefore feel encouraged to perhaps share a bold idea. Yeah, I think safety and comfort 
are extremely important in classroom settings. And I think they can be achieved in various ways, whether that be in a traditional mainstream model. I think that oftentimes the circular layout is conducive for students to feel comfortable. However, I do understand that some students may feel exposed in that layout, whereas in a different layout, such as a stadium seating, they can feel comfortable since they are just a number in the room, one of many students. It was interesting for me this semester to work at a Sudbury school. The Sudbury model of education is one in which students don't have to attend class, there is no set curriculum, and they have the autonomy to do whatever they want, whenever they want. So learning in that setting was very comfortable, it was very safe, and also took place in a variety of settings. It was never in really a traditional classroom setting with a teacher who was lecturing at the front and students sitting around. It was taking place outside in the woods behind the school and in the school in their own computer room. So it really was interesting to see how learning doesn't necessarily have to occur in a traditional layout. I found the Sudbury model to be extremely safe and comforting to students. I think they build confidence within themselves because of their intrinsic motivation to be learning and the lack of pressure and structure put on them. And I think that was reflected in the open classroom setting where learning can take place in any place at any time. Those were all really great points. And in particular, that last one stands out to me because of the idea of pressure. And I would connect a number of classroom layouts back to a factory-like model. And there are a number of connections between modern industrial production and the education system, one of which I would say being a very clear grid-like layout where students are not only individual, but they are in a sense educational products that each of you will receive the same education and a school is almost required to pump out students as an end product. And I'm not saying that it is necessarily so dystopian or dark, but I do think we often lose, as we'd mentioned in our discussion on grades, an appreciation or respect for the individual. And yet at the same time, I don't think you can help but notice that students will find ways to express individuality. It's one of the reasons I'm grateful to have attended a school that did not enforce a dress code, because students, I think, deserve that individuality. And similarly, coming back to classroom layout, I would notice in myself and in numerous friends of mine with whom I took classes, a preference for a specific seat. And I don't think it was always rooted in the location of the seat per se, so much as a familiarity. And that sense of familiarity, similar to what you bring up in the Sudbury model, to me is very crucial. Because with familiarity, you can build upon that and encourage students to learn and feel not only comfortable learning, but excited to learn. And in many ways, I often feel like a rare case or product of the educational system in that I felt so excited to learn that when I came to college, I think I found a renewed interest in learning. And it's one of the reasons this podcast exists and also one of the reasons I've made certain friends because they've had a lot to teach me, frankly, and still do, which excites me. And I would even go so far as to say, at the risk of being very meta or perhaps transcendental, that I think if you make a classroom learning environment comfortable enough, 
or numerous learning environments comfortable enough, a student can, to an extent, internalize the philosophy of that room to the point that they carry a mentality of comfort and safety and learning with them and approach new situations, new environments, new people with that mentality of an ability to learn for the self to be its own teacher almost through observation, critical listening, questioning of the circumstances around the individual. And speaking personally, and admittedly anecdotally, I can't speak for anyone else, it's been almost a spiritual end result of the education system and the education I received that I'm so excited to learn Going on walks for me feels adventurous because there's so much to see and observe in the architecture of houses that I haven't previously passed, or the models of cars that people are purchasing, how people maintain their gardens and yards, and any of the other infinite pieces of information in our world. Perhaps I'm rambling a bit here, but I do think a lot of that was rooted in a very comfortable learning environment that was fostered for me in the schools I attended. And I would encourage those listening, perhaps teachers specifically, as I know some educators have tuned in, to think about the idea that form is function, which is, of course, an idea I think first introduced to me in a biology course in my junior year of high school. And to explain for those who may not know, I would contend it is the fundamental principle in design that human beings build tools and craft objects or spaces, not arbitrarily, not simply going off of loose preference, but ultimately for very specific functions, because we intend for spaces and tools to be used in specific ways. And perhaps the ideal classroom is not necessarily a rigid structure, but allows for ample rearrangement. I remember very fondly in my kindergarten and similarly young years of schooling that we would have beanbags or placemats where we could sit and move around the classroom, and I appreciated that the structure of that space felt very fluid in the same way that an imaginary child at play might repurpose furniture at home and other similar structures to suit different needs. And having brought that up, I'd be very curious to hear what you think about classroom fluidity and the potential for rearrangement. I recall a concept from my psychology class that brought up the idea that a consistent classroom arrangement can be good and can be helpful for students, especially if they study in that same place and then take their exam in that same location. I don't recall the exact name of the concept, but I do remember it. And I think I tried it out on a particular quiz for my psychology class, and I did well on that quiz. And so perhaps there is some merit to it. However, I do think that a free-form class that goes beyond the premises of a classroom can be very effective for students, especially if they go on field trips. And I noticed this in my own schooling, as well as when I was working at an enrichment program this summer in Chicago, and students were able to go on the train to other parts of the city and learn through field trips to museums and observation of architecture, for example, and other details. I think it's great to have field trips in which you are encouraged to observe different aspects of your environment. And I honestly miss that. My spring semester of last year, I was in a class about Knox County, the county in which Kenyon College is located. And it was a sociology class. And we went on a few field trips to a farm, to a local park, to the Kokosing River. We went on a guided 
Black History Tour of Mount Vernon, which is a nearby town to Kenyon College. And that was a really great experience. And after every field trip, we would have to write a two-page reflection on our visit because my professor believed that was extremely important to the learning experience. And I actually feel very similarly to that professor, although I've only been on a handful of field trips in the final years of my education, each of them was very memorable because I had the opportunity to explore a different area of the world, often very near the school. And I think that does stand out in your mind because it is harder to distinguish certain days from others if the environments and all of the other stimuli around you are identical, whereas a trip two hours away will likely stand out because you took a journey to get there and hopefully had a memorable experience wherever you went. And bridging beyond a strictly academic or classroom sense of how an environment can be structured to best facilitate learning I'd really be interested to know what you think about potential environments in our world that might be best for learning. For example, I think of monasteries that have been secluded away from urban or other areas of typical societal activity. And while I acknowledge that a lot occurs in monasteries, at least to my recollection in the Middle Ages, a primary task in a number of monasteries was to copy manuscripts. And so learning and intellectual activity was very central. And I wonder if perhaps it wasn't facilitated and encouraged by that environment. And then I think about the inspirational quotations and images we often see posted on Instagram or Tumblr that are quotes laid over certain backgrounds. And I've noticed certain patterns in those backgrounds. Often people will choose a vast ocean or a beautiful forest or mountaintops with a beautiful sunset or clouds. And it makes me think that our minds are able to, on some level, tap into the vast expanse that lays before us. And I don't have chemical data to back that up or other studies to indicate clearly one way or the other. But I do notice in myself, not always in an intellectual sense, that I do feel more open and freed in open environments. And as far as learning is a very mental process and can incorporate all aspects of your self-esteem, your emotional spirit that day, and your general attitude, I do think that certain spaces in nature might be ideal. But giving you a very particular question to answer, if you are supplied with infinite resources and money to craft a classroom or school or academy, whatever noun you'd prefer, in which to foster the best learning environment, and of course this is subjective to you, what would your approach be there? Where might you locate it? What might some of the rooms, if you plan to build rooms, look like? And what are some other traits and details that come to mind when I mention this? I was having a discussion with some friends the other day at a bar, actually, and I was telling them about the Sudbury model of education. I was saying, just as kind of a joke, that maybe a school where on certain days it operates as a Sudbury school and on other days operates as a more traditional mainstream school could be a good environment for certain students. And then we started thinking about it, and I realized that that isn't a bad idea at all. I do think it could be somewhat problematic with the students operating in two different models of education. I think it's nice to have those breaks in which students can have time to reflect on their own and learn in a less structured classroom environment. 
So I think a school that has elements in both models and students have the opportunity to pursue what they are interested in on certain days and on other days they have to conform to a more traditional classroom setting or have to go on a mandatory field trip or excursion could be beneficial to their experience as a student. And I'm not saying I'm necessarily going to open up a school like this. However, I think it would be something that is worth a shot and I'd be intrigued to share this idea. I think that my alternative school that I went to in high school had some elements of the Sudbury model. We had a school meeting in which all of the students would get together as well as the teachers and we would vote on various proposals brought to the school board. And the Sudbury school has the exact same model as well as a review committee, which we had at our school, they called judicial committee, in which students are disciplined for infractions they've committed. I think those are two effective models to have in schools. They teach students democracy and how to self-discipline. I think the environment should not be definitive. I think learning can take place in any setting. Learning in a class should be both within the confines of the classroom as well as the outside world. I think that's really interesting, and I appreciate your point on environment. I can't stop thinking about schools that are maybe set in remote or curious locations, perhaps underwater or located in a forest beyond most external distractions, beyond the distractions of perhaps an urban environment where there aren't a lot of people around. Of course, it should be noted that certain students might feel uncomfortable or anxious in those spaces, and that should be accounted for and adjusted if, in fact, there were a school, as I'm describing. I'm also really intrigued that you mentioned a bar, because my mind immediately went to the idea that certain people feel more comfortable in non-academic settings talking to others, and I think inadvertently learning from others, if perhaps they're consuming alcohol or if they feel a bit loosened up. And obviously there is an unhealthy extreme there, but I'd be very curious to hear what an expert might think of a school model in which students of legal drinking age are offered a single drink before class to see if they feel more encouraged to talk or if their minds operate more fluidly, if they're able to absorb ideas in different or more concrete and observable ways. I'd be very intrigued by that. And before we close this episode, what would you like the audience to think about after listening to our discussion? I think the listeners should consider the environment and atmosphere of a classroom. I think environmental competence is a really important idea. So that's just an awareness of how the physical environment affects learning and understanding. I really agree with you. I think there are methods that have gone unused. I think that the alcohol consumption idea isn't a bad idea at all. Stimuli like that that make students feel comfortable is key in a classroom. I really felt that when I was working at this Sudbury school, I felt very relaxed and eager to learn in this school that was really just a house in the middle of the woods. And it was beautiful. And I spoke with a bunch of the students. I would interview them for my own podcast, as well as a documentary I made. In all of my interviews, they would talk about how much they appreciated this secluded environment and the woods that surrounded them because they really felt that they were in touch with nature and that they could learn from it. 
And it's nice to hear that other people were appreciating the influence nature can have in our environment. I would also encourage listeners to think about, especially in relation to the idea of socializing at a bar, the ways in which learning environments permeate almost any social interaction. For example, a first date, where one goal of both parties, at least in my mind, is to learn about the other person and see how you might be compatible and who they are as an individual and how a restaurant or a movie theater or any other typical setting for a first date might impede or encourage the learning that takes place when people are sharing in a conversation. I even think, in regards to this podcast, people should think about media in which information is exchanged and what can make that most fluid and easiest to understand. Perhaps we could demand more of newscasters to create a media environment in which they very clearly explain the information that the audience is seeking in those broadcasts. And Harry, I'd like to thank you very much for coming on and talking about this today. Thanks again for having me. Well, it's always a pleasure, but as ever, we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. Ours are only two voices, and we'd love to hear from you. So if you have any thoughts, opinions, or feedback of any kind, you can find us on Twitter or on Facebook. You can also email us via strideandsaunter at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to the show as well as supporting us on Patreon, where you can enjoy perks like bonus episodes in exchange for your support. And as always, we thank you very much for listening. And from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off.